Uh, here is our second faculty faith story. I'm joined very kindly by David Hilborn, our academic dean, and uh, these are going to follow a similar pattern each time and ramble from their beginnings. So we start at, in your beginnings. So what is your background starting positions for? So, Matt, thank you very much for asking me. It's a privilege to share both with folk in the room and folk uh, being live streamed in and anybody listening, as I understand, listening on yes. podcast. Yes, um, My origins are in London, particularly South London. And one of my party pieces is uh, if people really push me hard enough, I can go back into the accent that was my family's accent all around SE23, Forest Hill. My dad's family, big extended family, working to lower middle class, lived in that sort of now borough of South London um, or that area of South London. Aunts, uncles, cousins, first cousins, second cousins, they were all in those sort of terraced houses uh, behind Stansted Road in Forest Hill. It wasn't a particularly religious family. Um, very little church going ever happened. I went to christenings, as they were called, in the local Anglican church and weddings when I got a bit older. But my parents didn't go to church. And so in many, many ways, it was a very secular upbringing. But I had an aunt um, and she was very unusual uh, because she'd moved from that very big extended family in Forest Hill out to the coast. She'd married somebody from Margate uh, on the south coast of Kent. Her name was Nellie, short for Helen or a nickname for Helen. And there were sort of rumours and mutterings about Auntie Nellie because she'd become this funny thing called a Christian. And took it really seriously, went to church every Sunday. So the, the discourse was that Auntie Nellie was a bit of a, a religious kind of fanatic and a bit weird. But um, in Christmas 1968, when I was just coming up to my fourth birthday, or I, no, I would have been four, sorry, I would have been four. She bought me a Bible and she uh, put her name in it. And that was almost like a promise that, she and her husband, George, would be praying for me. And um, this was a Christmas present, a Bible. Again, my family thought it was rather strange. But um, spool a long way forward. We'll get to my sort of theological training later. But when I was reading theology at Oxford, um, I used that Bible for my finals. Because you're allowed to bring a, an unmarked Bible into uh, your work. You could bring a, I think a Mark Bible into your finals. And um, and I used that for my finals. So it was a kind of testimony to the fact that, although I had a very sort of non-Christian upbringing, I had one member of my family who prayed for me regularly and gave me the scriptures, which didn't mean a lot to me when I was four. Hmm. I imagine it was a, an old revised standard version of the Bible. Um, but her prayers came to fruition later. And it's a it's an object lesson, I think, um, in faithful prayer for people, but it obviously had an effect. And great if you want to teach prevenient grace at any point. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Very easy access into Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh okay. So from that beginning, what are the the, the big moments in terms of the progression or entry and progression into faith? Yeah. So my dad was somebody who 
left school at 16. He was a bright grammar school boy. But in those days, to go to university, you needed money. There were no student grants or anything. Um, and, you know, he lived through the Second World War as a kid and then trained um, by doing evening classes as an accountant whilst working as a clerk in a bank. And um, uh, he eventually sort of rose up the ranks in his career and did very well, became a certified accountant and then a finance manager. And we moved to a more kind of leafy suburb called West Wickham. I don't know if any of you know it, Kent, near Bromley, between Bromley and Beckenham, really. And um, everything came, became a little bit more affluent then. And at the age of seven, um, some mates from school were in the Cub Scouts um, and persuaded me to go along with them to the Cub Scouts. And I had a bit of a shock because I was told that to be a Cub Scout um, at this local church hall where they met, you also had to go to Sunday school. You know, it was in the days when that was still part of the culture that, you know, it was expected. The Scouts have changed quite a lot in the intervening years. Um, but then it was a fundamentally a Christian organization. And uh, I sort of took a deep breath and thought, oh my goodness, this is gonna be really boring. And I cycled on my own, I remember this vividly. My first Sunday going to Sunday school at this church, which was a Congregationist church in West Wickham called Emmanuel Church. And my mum had checked it out before. So there was a guy called Frank Pitt, who's the junior church leader, he knew I was coming, and because he, he hadn't seen me before, he kind of deduced that I was the new boy. And I remember vividly, he stood on the stairs of the church hall, which was appended to the church. And it was the 70s, and he was a photographer, so he had a slightly more creative life. And he was wearing a big floral tie with wide lapels on his jacket. And he said, you must be David. And I said, he knows my name. Uh, he worked out that I was this new boy. And that had an effect on me. And it carried through. He was an amazing man of God, really a combination of fun and faith and commitment. And um, he kept me coming. I mean, not just him, but really good junior church leaders. But his, he had a charism of welcome. And I went back just a couple of summers ago because my mother has passed away. She's buried in um, a churchyard in, in West Wickham. I went, you know, went to just tend her grave, but also just took pictures of that church entrance because I went past it. And it's on the route to the, the many different places I go when I go back to West Wickham. And I remember posting on Facebook and doing a bit of a, a kind of little reflection on how important the ministry of welcome is, because on those steps, somebody who showed the hospitality of the gospel welcomed me in as a stranger, somebody who was quite scared, actually, of church and going to church and found it all very foreign and, and strange and, and drew me in um, and made the New Testament and the Old Testament live in a way I'd never known before, despite having that Bible from my auntie Nelly when I was four. So when would you say you became Christian? Yeah, yeah. No, I wouldn't have said I was Christian at that point, but 
Um, and I didn't go to church every Sunday, partly because my family did things on Sundays, which drew me away from church. And I couldn't have, at the age of eight, nine, ten, said that I'm going to church rather than going to see Aunt Min or whatever. Um, but I did go reasonably regularly and it kept me interested and um, joined the what was called the, the Inters group, which was kind of the early teens group. And then Seekers was 13 and above. And it was a Seekers group that was special. There was a group of four <clears throat> sort of youth group leaders, all of whom were really taking their faith seriously. Um, they lived it. They, they really embodied the good news of Jesus, which I was beginning to understand better by this point. Um, and, you know, I still remember their, their names, Rosemary, Jill, Simeon, Eric. Um, and they not only deepened our understanding of the scriptures and the Christian faith, they saw in me a desire to go deeper. Now, I mean, the background to this, of which I've missed out, is that when my parents um, got to a certain point in their marriage, I was 11 years of age, they went through a very acrimonious and difficult divorce. So my dad left home and eventually married the person he had an affair with. And um, I was then being brought up by a single mother who was going through a really difficult time. So a couple of teachers at school and that group of junior church leaders became almost like surrogate parents, if I'm honest. And pretty astonishingly, at the age of 14, they said, do you want to come to our adult Bible study group? Uh, and I thought, my gosh, you know, going with all these older people, that's going to be a bit weird. And they didn't ask anybody else to go. But I, I was quite a serious uh, teenager and quite sort of I suppose academics at school and so forth. Uh, that was another lifeline because the scriptures began to come alive and probably worth saying that my church as a whole was very much more in the liberal tradition so Sunday sermons and uh, so on tended to be in that vein but the junior church leaders I'm talking about would be going to um, Christian festivals, like in the early days, Greenbelt, where it's a bit more evangelical than it perhaps is now, and um, evangelistic rallies at places like Methodist Central Hall. And they take me with them. And by the time I got to 15, we went to Hildenborough Hall, which is a retreat centre between Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells in Kent, which had been associated with a guy called Tom Rees, who'd been a massive evangelist, um, who was big part bringing Brilly Graham to the UK after the Second World War. And, and his son, Justin, also had an evangelistic ministry at uh, Hildenborough Hall. We went to a gospel concert, well, not an evangelistic meeting, a gospel concert in the winter of uh, 1979, I was 15. And uh, at the end of this gospel concert, the, the lead singer, uh, asked people to pray a prayer of commitment and I was ready to put my hand up and pray that prayer and that's what I did and really fr from the next day I knew I was a Christian I knew I, I'd known enough from the Bible studies and 
the teaching at church to know what being born anew in Christ was. And it was a definite transformation in which I took reading the Bible much more seriously and praying much more seriously. So I was converted at 15. Um, and although it was a bit of a shock to my mum and my dad in particular, who wasn't living at home by that point, they they weren't hostile. They, they just were fairly neutral. They didn't get in my way. Um, but I remember a little bit later when I was set to go to university, my, my grandmother, my dad's mum, said, um, be very careful when you go to university about um, drugs and sex and um, also don't become even more of a religious fanatic than you are at the moment. Ah. Um, but actually what happened at uh, university was Nottingham University was that the Christian Union and the local church I attended became very important in um, forming me even more into somebody who thought God had a call on my life to work full time in church ministry. So what was your first degree in at Nottingham? I went there to study English um, literature, but the degree was called English Studies and had a very uh, good balance of language and literature. So I did a lot of English language modules in the first year and just absolutely fell in love with linguistics. And so in the second and third year, I completely focused, not completely, but largely focused on linguistics and um, absolutely loved that whole side of things, which really was, I suppose, the reason I, I focused on that is relevant to what I went on to do theologically, because... At school and in that first year at university, studying Shakespeare or Milton or modern poetry, people would use things like, uh, use phrases like, um, the imagery is very vivid here, or um, this is very resonant, this this verse. And I'm thinking that's a bit vague. I already want to lift up the hood and know why, what's happening to these sentences, what's happening grammatically and lexically to make this work. And really, the linguistic stuff gave me the opportunity to do that and um, became particularly interested in um, a branch of linguistics called pragmatics, which looks at how language is used and how context shapes meaning. You know, um, just a, a little example. Um, if you walk in to a meeting like this and somebody leaves the door open and there's a draft and somebody here says door the person walking through the door will know that's an instruction to shut the door. But all it is grammatically and semantically is one noun. Look it up in a dictionary. It says, you know, um, entrance to a room on hinges or something like that. But of course, it becomes something else in context, in usage. And I thought, gosh, that's really fascinating. I want to look into that further. And long to, again, fast forward a little bit to when I got to study theology. Of course, there's a lot of that stuff going on in the Bible. You have to understand context and usage and how that then becomes real for us in worship or preaching is very dependent on that kind of linguistic pragmatics approach. So so really, I mean, also really getting inside texts was important. And I thought, gosh, this well, this could help with Bible reading as well and understanding scripture. And I really got into how I could make connections between what I was doing in English studies and linguistics and, and my faith and reading reading the Bible. 
So how does the journey go from English graduate to theologian minister? How long does that yeah. take and what the... Well, at university, obviously, the great thing about university or somewhere like this here at this college is that you get to meet Christians of other traditions. So all I'd really known at school, because, you know, even in the 70s and 80s when I was at school, not many people in my class were Christians. There was a scripture union, but a very small scripture union. Um, at university, it was, wow, you know, there are all these other Christians. I met Pentecostals and uh, people in house churches, and I'd not really come across them before very much. And they gave me different perspectives. So particularly in my uh, college or hall Christian union, we had Christian unions in each of the residential halls at Nottingham, but also the, the major university-wide Christian union. And particularly in my hall Christian union, there were folk who'd been, they use this phrase, baptised in the spirit. And I kind of, obviously, I'd read the Bible. I was reading the Bible regularly by then, and I'd kind of come across this phrase. But it hadn't been talked about, really, in my church. People didn't use the gift of tongues or other gifts in my church congregation. And um, and they helped me understand that better. And by my second year, I was attending, as well as my own United Reformed Church locally in Beeston, Nottingham, which was in the same denomination as my, my church back in West Wickham, because the congregationists had joined with the Presbyterians to form the United Reformed Church. And um, uh, I, I basically learned more about the gifts of the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, filling with the Spirit. And it was in um, Talbot Street, um, Assemblies of God Church in Nottingham, I was at the Christmas concert, the Christmas service, in the winter of my second year. And we were singing a song called, I live, I live because he is risen. I live, I live to worship him. And, it's an old and as we were singing that, I found myself singing that in another tongue. And I thought, gosh, is this biblical? And I remembered that, of course, there is a reference to singing in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. So I, I thought, I'm, I'm okay there then. Um, but I, I, I received the gift of, of tongues by singing. Uh, I'd been a, a chorister in my school uh, career and loved singing. So that kind of squared the circle quite nicely. So it became clear that through that process that you were going to go on to study theology? Or did you yeah, that was a big... That was, yeah, so that was, um, that. you know, Pentecostals often talk about power for service, don't yeah. they? The, the work of the Spirit and particularly filling on baptism of the Spirit being um, empowerment for service. And yeah, I began to think seriously then about whether God was calling me to full-time missionary work or full-time ordained ministry in my denomination. And to test that, because I wasn't quite clear, I did a summer team mission with Arab World Ministries in North Africa. Well, that's um, all. If you're going to test whether you've got a vocation to overseas mission, working with with Muslims basically is quite a thing. Um, and yeah, your 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 dad of course has a connection with AWM, and um, it was a formative experience in the sense that it was very very intense. Um, but it convinced me that it, that wasn't my calling. Um, and, you know, I thank AWM 
not because it was such a bad experience. It was a great experience. But the focus and the understanding of God's will that I got through that was you are to serve me in, for the moment, in the UK, in, in pastoral ministry. So in my third year at Nottingham, whilst preparing for my finals, I candidated for ministry in the United Reformed Church, ordained ministry, and much to my astonishment, they selected me to go straight on to Oxford to, to train, because they had a college at Oxford, which was by then a full college, the university called Mansfield College, some of you might know. But it originally had been a congregationist college for the training of ministers in the University of Oxford. And, um, and I went straight on to study theology. Now, it ought to be said that one of the reasons why they accepted me to do that was quite rare. was because I, from the age of 16, I worked as a, an assistant in play centres in the rougher parts of South London from which I'd come in the borough of Southwark. Um, pretty much most vacations, most school holidays, working with kids off council estates and so forth. And I think they thought that gave me some street cred and some worldly experience, which would stand me in good stead. Um, I suppose it did in a way. Uh, but anyway, I went I went and went to Oxford to study theology. And you've been through many things since then, many positions since yeah. then. We're not doing CV rehash no, no. Uh, this evening. But... Through that course, can you identify some particular events or ministries that you got involved in that yeah. were particularly formative? Well, probably the most important thing is I met my wife while I was <laughs> training for United Reformed Church Ministry. Mia had gone up to Oxford at the same time as me. And um, we, we we didn't particularly get on the first two and a half years. We got on okay, but, um, but the third year things began to develop. And um, so that was very important. We actually ended up getting married in the college chapel um uh, she was trained for ministry too and significant things there at, at, in that period were that i was taught by some extraordinary people who gave me a real passion to study theology beyond that point um tom wright was there you know nt wright i'm sure pretty much everybody here knows nt wright um, Ed Sanders, he of the new perspective on Paul, was uh, the tutor of one of my modules, and it was just me and another guy and him uh, for a whole term on intertestamental literature, which was amazing. Even though I profoundly disagreed with <laughs> his theological conclusions, um, just a slight diversion here is that Mike, um, the guy I did this module called World of the New Testament with, uh, with Ed Sanders, E.P. Sanders. He and I took our courage in both hands about two weeks off the end of the module and said, Professor Sanders, um, do you ever have dinner with your students? He said, yeah. Um, we said, would you like to come to a Chinese restaurant or whatever with us? He said, sure, guys, you know, Southern American brawl, yeah. And so we we took Ed Sanders out to dinner and we we decided that over dessert, we'd leave it to a dessert, we'd ask him, um, so, Professor Sanders, how do you stand with Jesus? <laughs> like, personally. And it was, I mean, he, he was kind of, he was ordained Methodist, but hadn't really ever worked, in, I think, in pastoral ministry. And his basic response was, you know, the Greeks, uh, the Greek, Greek philosophy invaded 
and messed it all up by the time it got to the Council of Nicaea and all this homoousios stuff, you know, of the same substance with the Father. But he was a follower of Jesus as a, a moral guide and teacher and all the rest of it. Um, he, he was looking at Jesus through a Jewish yeah. lens, a sort of Second Temple Jewish Judaism lens. Anyway, that was a slight diversion, but um, some really good things happened there. I think I found it very intense because I had to do this, the Oxford schools in theology for three-year degree in two years because you do as a graduate. I had to cram Greek and, you know, that was very, very demanding, even though I loved languages. Um, but I, I give thanks for that. Um, everybody who's watching and listening, you know, do your languages if you possibly can. It's a, a great thing to do. Andrea's here, so she'll applaud that. Um, yeah, I was I was seconded to a Presbyterian church or URC church in the Reformed tradition, Presbyterian, which was interesting in the centre of Oxford. Um, and then in the final year, we did an internship on a council estate in Birmingham. And Mia and I had just got married and went to this and in a really condemned, really, really tough area of Birmingham called um, or Stonebrook Way was where we lived, um, just on the edge of Wheelie Castle. And that was quite a sort of an eye-opener. But uh, it was good, good, good experience of sort of inner city ministry. And you, so you, you were with the United Reformed Church? Yeah. You've been out with the Anglican Church? Yeah. Uh, Evangelical Alliance. Are there any particular um, ongoing formative events? So, um, PhD yeah, or? I mean, I appreciate that. You know, I, we're not here to run through all my seasons. <laughs> just, I'll give you some highlights. So, so that internship year was very formative in sort of understanding poverty and deprivation. Um, and then we were called to ministries, Mia and I, that were joint um, in two ad adjacent churches in Nottingham. But the proviso was that I would be part time and do a PhD alongside. Uh, looking after a congregation in a place called Keyworth. And uh, I really, you know, that was great. And um, one of the big draws of going back to Nottingham was because there was a guy called uh, Anthony Thistleton who'd written this massive book called Two Horizons, The Two Horizons on hermeneutics. And another book then, New Horizons in Hermeneutics, which unlocked all the things that I was thinking when I was studying Theology, which is why don't they make more of this linguistics that I've been studying before? Because the methods that I was taught at Oxford were the old historico-grammatical, you know, the four-source hypothesis for Genesis, you know, and 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 really what a mate of mine called textual archaeology, rather than the the questions of you know how these texts then bridge the horizon of their historical context to where we are today. And, you know, in my linguistics uh, training, I'd done reception theory, I'd done discourse analysis, I'd done pragmatics, and all of those things were just coming into biblical studies. And uh, actually, Ed Sanders was somebody who had blocked those things. Um, and so my PhD was an exploration, really, of how um, pragmatic linguistics related to the way that the language of the Bible relates to the language of worship. So what do we do with the biblical text when it comes into liturgy, worship, singing, not so much preaching, because that would have been a whole other PhD. But I did my PhD 
part-time alongside being a pastor while Mia um, looked after a congregation um, that was the next one along in Nottingham called Musters Road. And I played a lot of cricket as well. I love cricket, played a lot of cricket in my youth and carried on playing cricket while I was a pastor. And um, that was the sort of best period of my cricket career, playing in the South Knots League. Um, and uh, from there, we were called to another ministry together in central London at the City Temple on Hoban Viaduct. And I was there for a number of years and also wrote my first book while I was there uh, on evangelicals and postmodern culture. Um, and we did lunchtime services, as you do in the city of London, because people are there in the week, not so much in the weekend. And a lot of the preachers for our Sunday, uh, for our Thursday lunchtime services came from the Evangelical Alliance because their headquarters were just across the river in Kennington. And I got to know the leaders of EA quite well. And they began to ask me, because a lot of them have read my first book, they began to ask me to write things for them and do a bit of consultancy and join their theological commission. And again, long story short, I ended up, when I left City Temple, becoming the head of theology at the Evangelical Alliance. And I was there for a decade. So where would you place yourself within, how would you define your current spirituality, theology? Um, probably it's worth just saying, Matt, that that was a springboard. That time at EA was a springboard to full-time work in theological education because I, I was working for a parachurch body trying to keep my eye on the academy, places like this and university departments of theology. And I was blessed by the then principal here, Derek Tidball, who was chair of the Council of the Alliance, who said, David, you need a foothold in the academy. We're going to make you an associate research fellow. So I became an associate research fellow here, supervised my first doctoral student here. Um, not on faculty, I was I was an associate or a what we now call a visiting lecturer, but I had that title. Went to research seminars here, really enjoyed that link. But when I finished um, that process of working for the Evangelical Alliance, I was ready to step full time into theological education. My first job was working at St. Malite, what became St. Malitis College in London here. Along the way, I'd actually become an Anglican. I hadn't mentioned that yes. in 2002. And that was a long, long story. But partly the the relationships I built when I was at the EA, a lot of them were folk who took scholarship seriously, were confident in their evangelical faith, um, came from the Church of England. Because it's just big and it has evangelical colleges. The URC didn't have designated colleges that were in that tradition. And I knew my conversion, that experience of being baptised in the Spirit, receiving gifts of the Spirit, or some of them anyway, um, at university had convinced me and my ordination training in Oxford that I was an evangelical Christian. Um, so um, in 2002, Mir and I both became Anglicans, and that happened alongside the work of the Evangelical Alliance. And then my first full-time job teaching theology was in an Anglican training college. Because you do a lot of it ecumenical. Yeah. Work. So, yeah. So when I was at the Alliance, obviously that's very committed to Christian unity. But also to be fair to my 
former denomination, the URC. It was a historic union, um, one of the most important unions of two traditions that have previously been distinct, Congregational Presbyterian. So I always had a strong commitment to Christian unity across the denominational divides. And that continued a pace at the Alliance because you'd have all kinds of people. They, they signed up to a, a simple basis of faith, which affirmed you know, the supreme authority of scripture for faith and conduct, the centrality of conversion, personal discipleship, the cross of Christ being a substitutionary atonement, and you know the importance of mission and commending the faith to others. Um, so they were all things that I held dear. And that was very important in informing me um, as an evangelical. And then I decided when I had the opportunity to teach theology, I wanted to do it in a, in a college that held those values dear. And Simonitis, some, some of you will know, grew out of um, Holy Trinity Brompton, uh, the Alpha Course and all of that kind of thing, which espoused those, those values, basically, and was charismatic in the sense that it took the gifts of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit and baptism of the Spirit seriously. And that was a very exciting time. Um, so it was a great opportunity, a wonderful opportunity to be in a fairly new theological college to grow something. It's now the biggest theological college in the Church of England. Um, but but to cut my teeth teaching every day. So how do you see when you do get the chance to do a bit of teaching? Yeah. Uh, your spirituality and your theological journey, and how do you yeah intertwine all things when you're seeking to teach or write about theology? So that PhD I mentioned on, if you like, the hermeneutics of worship. That was a good way to describe it. I won't give you the full title because it. It's a little bit kind of specific, um, but that sort of made me as a nonconformist in a tradition that venerated sort of extemporary prayer, um, conscious of the value of, of having a framework for worship that might be more rooted in history. Now, I know that there'll be different views on, on written liturgies here, but for me, the disciplines of morning an evening prayer and um, a communion service or a regular service that was reaching back into the history of the church and distilled the best that people had spoken or prayed in whether it's a book of common prayer by Thomas Cranmer or modern Anglican liturgy. I found I needed that structure, not slavishly sticking to it. There's tremendous flexibility now in Anglican worship you know it's not just a set script um but I, I found that was a helpful discipline in my prayer life and my corporate worship life um so that became more important to me on the back of doing i basically convinced myself in the thesis that what's sometimes called the common order tradition which is where you have a, a framework for worship which is associated with people like john calvin john knox modern presbyterian uh, worship I, was was my preferred sort of sweet spot. I loved the spontaneity of charismatic worship that I picked up at university and so on. I love that. And I'm still writing about Pentecostalism today and a member of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. But I also value structure and frameworks. And I value history. I'm a church historian, really, fundamentally now, I guess. And um, 
I value what the wisdom of the ages can give me. And I look at scripture and I think that the material that we draw on in scripture, the Psalms for worship, looking at some of the kind of doxologies in the New Testament, they have they have a structure. You don't have to slavishly just to use them as, you know, every single week um, in your worship, but I think they give us a good grid. Thank you very much. Okay. So that's David Hilborn's Fancy Faith story. Yeah, I think that brings it pretty much up to date. Good. Ooh. That's really interesting.